Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, welcome to the Backstage With podcast. I'm Mikey Worrell. A few weeks ago, I caught up with the producer Katie Lipson from Aria Entertainment. We met up at the Hope Mill Theatre in Manchester, where Katie is the artistic director, and it's her work there that last year got her a place on the stages list of theatre's 100 most influential figures. During our chat, we talked all about the shows that she'd love to produce, as well as those that she's already produced, many of them new pieces of work. As part of that conversation, Katie called on some of London's most popular and well-known venues to get behind new musicals and support them to help London keep up with Broadway. Here's our conversation. Katie Lipson, thank you so much for talking to the Backstage With podcast. Thanks for having me. Here we are on a leather sofa in an old mill. So we're in a Grade 2 listed building in an old cotton mill in Ancoats. It's the Hope Mill Theatre, which uh, opened just a couple of years ago. It's a beautiful um, theatre. It's got a wonderful aesthetic. Um, we're sat in the bar right now, and then when, when you go in the theatre, there's a whole new world in there. Um, audiences love coming here because of its, you know, it's so friendly, it's so warm, it's so vibrant. There's a beautiful bar, food on offer, um, and it's very, very different to anything that I think any even lo- London audiences have experienced. Well, you only have to look up, and you know, you've still got all the original brickwork with yeah. like the huge holes that go right up to the top. I imagine yes. it's really, it's a really cool mishmash with like big gold mirrors and, and yeah. comfortable leather chairs. It's, yeah. they've, they've done a really nice job with it. I think so, yeah. And I think that helps um, to kind of make our audiences come back time and again. Do you think audiences are responding differently up here to, to this than they would to touring shows at the Palace and, and the Opera House? Yeah, and I think that has something to do with the experience, but also the content. We're being very brave with our choices. We're putting on American musicals that perhaps haven't been seen on tour, for various reasons, um, maybe to do with their commerciality at a larger scale, or people are not necessarily brave enough to launch them in that way. Um, and I think also the experience of how small it is, is really packing a punch, because a proscenium arch theatre is wonderful, don't get me wrong, and I have done shows in those sorts of spaces too, but I think my heart and my roots will always be sort of off West End fringe, because you know, that experience is so much more intense for an audience. They're so close to the action. They're so immersed in the theatricality. They almost feel they're in the world of the show. Um, I think Manchester audiences are responding to it um, favourably because it's unique. In London, there are 55 fringe theatres. You speak to theatre lovers in London and they often go to the Union, the Southwark Playhouse, the Gatehouse. They know it. It's part of their, you know, um, re- you know roster of theatres that they go to. But here... People know the Lowry, the Palace, the Opera House and, and the Royal Exchange and they do very specific things. So we're really lucky that we've managed to have a USP and so far are having great responses to the shows. Let's go back to, to your beginnings. There's, there doesn't seem to be a set path to becoming a producer. So how did you sort of carve out your path? Yeah, very interesting. So I was always very much in love with musical theatre as a singer, as a musician and I used to act a little bit. I also love business. And as you say, you know, there isn't a set path. And when you're 16 years old, you don't really know 
what it is. And I used to love theatre, but I didn't used to sit in the theatre and think, I want to put this on. I just used to think, I want to see this, I want to hear it. Um, and then I went to university to study genetics um, in London at 18, and I found a couple of friends who were quite keen to write a musical, and that's really how it happened. I started helping compose a new musical, and someone said, well, we should put it on now, it's ready, it's done. And that's when I said, okay, let's find a theatre, let's put some money together, I'll musically direct it, and we did it. And, you know, for the first three years of my 20s, Everything was really stripped back. It was all very small shows, but I was very fulfilled by it. And we have to remember that in those days, I was still at the piano, really musically directing every one of those shows and being very creatively involved. Um, there were low budget shows. There were generally kind of concerts or reviews. They weren't big spectacles with production values, but it gave me a taster of the organization and the sort of business side of producing. And I really, always loved what we call now in bigger theatre the general management, the contracting, the organising the rehearsal rooms, paying the bills, making sure that the artworks arrived, you know, all of the minutiae, which is a huge part, and often on bigger commercial shows that can be outsourced by a supporting partner who are paid to kind of do that so the producer can carry on being really creative and raising the money, which is one of the biggest jobs to do. Um, but I've always grafted, right from the beginning of my career, to now, which is now giving me a sense then of what every job is, how much everything's worth, how hard people work at different scales, what different thrills, different scales give you. Um, and therefore now when I work both here and commercially, and I see the difference, and then I see how shows from here can grow, it gives me a much better perspective on how to make this a business moving forward from Hope Mill Theatre. Talking of uh, transferring and, and growing your shows. Pippin is, is heading to London. Um, you've, you've already had hair in London. Yes. You've had the, the Adams Family on tour. Yeah. You're, you're doing so many projects. How, how on earth do you sort of start to organise your diary? I've always been incredibly organised. Um, I find multitasking quite easy. Some people are quite overwhelmed by an endless to-do list. But for me, I thrive on volume. I thrive on diversity. I thri thrive on multiple projects, one day seeing the artwork for a show that's in development to looking at a cast list for another. You know, at the same time, I'm incredibly focused. And some people have always said, you do too much, Katie. How do you stay focused? I say, I know, I've got these paths. Don't get me wrong, you know, the first three years of ARIA, I was building towards needing that vision, needing that one commercial show to set me on my commercial path. But as, as we know, it takes time to, first of all, get the rights vested in you, because you have to prove yourself to get a title like Adam's Family. And you have to know that you can deliver the financial side. You know, that's an incredibly high amount of money to raise. And five years ago, I couldn't have done it. I think as I, as I grow, perhaps I won't be doing 10 shows a year, but I hope that I always have two or three shows in development um, and lots of things ticking along because just focusing on one show, even if it was I was lucky enough to have a Hamilton, um, and needs your focus to build, um, you know, a life-changing brand like that. Same as Wicked. Same as, you know, um, you know, when when Cameron Macintosh found the three biggest hits in history that he produced, he's focused on making them international. I think when that happens, you have to focus on creating those global phenomenons. And when that happens. I will probably have to adjust. Hopefully that will happen. Um, but obviously they're, they're, they are very rare occurrences, but they're the dream, you know? Mm. 
for people who, who might be listening to this, who, whose life dream or life goal is to be a producer, what would you say to them? Like how, when they're starting out and they're saying, right, from, from Monday, this is, this is what I'm doing, where on earth do they start? They have to have a vision, first of all. You know, don't say you want to be a producer, but don't know what you want to produce. You know, you've got to have a sense of what you're drawn to, what you want to put on stage and why you want to put it on stage. You then have to look at the obstacles you think you face. So if you're an early stage producer and you think, I can only raise £10,000. I say only, that's a lot of money for a first-time producer. Then you think, okay, I need to find my feet, I need to learn. So I'm going to pick a a theatre and I'm going to maybe partner with someone else and we'll both put £10,000 in and maybe we can do a small concert show or a review show. And then, you know, each step you build, know your craft, know your genre, make sure you see as many musicals, well, if it's musicals, as many musicals as possible. Um, Make sure you have a sense of your own destiny. You really got to have a, you know, you might not know all the path, that kind kind of makes its own way, but you've got to understand the business. You could also try and work for another producer. You know, look at producers you admire, what work you like, um, and maybe see if there's a job going. For me, I never did that route. I think that, um, I think my passion for producing has just grown and grown the more I've done it. Um, I don't think that when I started, I thought, oh my God, I want to be Sonia Freeman. I don't think that I necessarily thought that then. Um, But as I've done more and more, I've become more ambitious, more clued up into what's required, and have more, I think I have more vision as I, as I progress. So I was never drawn to go and work for a commercial producer as an assistant. It just wasn't for me. I wanted to just do it there and then as the producer and make the decisions. But everyone's path's different. And as you say, uh, a huge part of the, the job is, is, is raising that money to put into a production. Was, when you were starting out, was that intimidating to you, having to go to people and ask, ask for money? Well, funnily enough, I must have produced for three, four years without raising any. I would... I used to work as a freelance voice coach and musical director, and I would use that money to fund my life, you know, to survive, as we all have to do. I would leave some of my savings in ARIA, and I would carefully risk that small amount of money in in every show I did. And as I grew, that risk became larger, but my knowledge of how a show might do became better. If the risk was too much, I brought in a partner or two and said, let's do, we need three of us to put this much in. Um, and always really was very careful that if I ever lost money, I, could, I had the money to lose. I, you know, you have to be very careful and you have to be prepared. But it's an investment in myself. This year alone, I did a three-week festival. It cost £150,000 and it should have covered its cost, but it didn't. And I had to lose £10,000 in it, but also didn't really take any management fees at all. So my, I worked for it for free. But I see that as a huge investment in my company. You know, I got to develop three more shows. I got to meet Bert Baccarat. My PR got me some great coverage on the BBC News and on Woman's Hour. So for me, that was a profile building exercise. You've got to decide what it is you're doing. So have a vision, have an idea, have a plan. Take your baby steps. There's no rush, you know. You've got to, it's got to feel organic. My path has felt very organic. When I met Joe and Will, I never dreamt that this could have happened. You know, I never knew this was the destiny, but, you know, just two years ago to think, yes, yes, there we go, I love new musicals, and now we have a home here to programme shows we love when we want to do them. You know, we don't have anyone saying yes or no, we can do it. And that's a very powerful thing to have as a passionate producer that has a lot of content they want to put on. 
you seem to have gained a reputation quite quickly for, for really championing new work, you know, what with taking from page to screen all the way from the Tristan Bates right through to the other palace and, and all that, uh, and everything that you've done here. But there, there's the odd revival in there as well. Do you, do you like that balance? Absolutely. I mean, every show has a, has, you know, you could ask me about every single show and ask me why I did it. I'm, I'm drawn to shows I love always. Every show that I put on, I would watch every night. I don't produce anything I don't love. That's why I'm focused on musicals. They're the things that get me up in the morning. They're the things I'm going to champion. They're the things that feel like my children. So when I lose money, I think, well, I had a great time. <laughs> or I loved it so much that this isn't the end for it. Maybe I'll make my money back the next time. So I've, I've done Tick, Tick, Boom. I've always wanted to do Jonathan Larson's work. And that was always a dream project. I love Bert Bacharach. So Promises, Promises was a dream project. And then I think I did The Secret Garden in the early days and The Mystery of Edwin Drood. But here, although Pippin has been done in England and so has Parade, you know, they were new to Manchester and therefore we were doing the Northern premiere. And for me, that's a really important thing. I like to do new things in new and interesting ways. Parade had been done in London twice. Pippin had been done in London, the original production, the Menier production. We needed to do it for the first time here in what, the US. What attracted you to Pippin? Oh, just the score, you know, and the, and, and the, the world it's in, but, you know, the visual aspect of it. And we brought it right back to that sort of vaudevillian, Bob Fosse-esque intimate production with just ten actors. Um, and it just was beautiful in here. It was magical. And the audience were transported again. You know, every time they step in that theatre, they think, wow, it looks so different again. They, 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 their mind's blown just as much as ours are. We're like, gosh, how, how different can this space look? You know. It's so true, Pippin was the first thing I saw here when we walked in and went, gosh, this, this is it. Yeah. And you think, oh wow, that, it's tiny. But then yeah. the, the, the number of different things that, that you can do with that space mm. is, is really, really impressive. Yeah. You say you, you produce things that you love. Before you actually can go ahead with that, do, do you have to sort of think through, okay, is this going to have another life beyond this? How can we grow this? If, it, if that's not plausible, do you then have to go, maybe that one's one for another few Absolutely. years? Absolutely. Where I am now, five, six years into ARIA, everything's more strategic now. So Parade was, because we loved it. You know, we would have taken it to London, but we couldn't, we weren't allowed, because obviously there's a London revival planned. Um, then we did Hair, you know, and I knew that that was more of a commercial title anyway. But again, did we think we were going to move it to London then? Possibly not, but it was so well received and was so great. I think then we all realised that we had a venue here that needed to transfer shows because our budgets were becoming bigger. We weren't able to even pay ourselves at all. And we thought the only way we can make this, this model work is that our shows start here, get all the love in the world, and then move on to London. Rather than the other way around, things in London, then going on tour, we would start out of London and come to London and then go on tour. Every show has a story and every show has a strategic path. Some shows are your safety shows that are potentially good money-making shows. You know, Adam's Family was my chance to really feel like I could earn a living wage out of a show. If you do a show of that scale, you know, we're talking about a show that in Hope Mill would cost so much for, say, six weeks, and that is the same cost as one week of Adam's Family on the road. You know, that's the difference. So I'm paid on those shows, and... To, to be able to take a living wage like that because it's a commercial tour suddenly changes my, my way of life. I can take that money, I can invest it in a new show to develop. I've got capital to pay my staff member who only started a year ago, who I desperately needed. And thank 
Gardy came on at that point because we transferred Yank and Hair and we had Toxic Avenger coming back. You know, and then the shows like Toxic Avenger, which I started with a couple of partners um, at Southwark Playhouse that was picked up by a big commercial producer who basically said, Katie, we're going to produce this again, you're going to do it all and we're going to back the show. And I was able quite quickly to relaunch that show because they really loved it and believed in it. Um, obviously, when you were, you were starting out, you must have gone, well, we'll just, we'll just give this a go, we'll, we'll see what happens. Have you, have you got to a point now where you're thinking, no, no, this, this is what I do now, I, I am I'm oh, yeah. completely... I had that moment a few years ago, but absolutely. I had the light bulb moment. But the light bulb moment happened really before I even started. There was two things that happened. One, I was working as a musical director for a new musical called Claws, um, and I fell in love with it, and I thought, wow... This music is extraordinary. I'd like to work on it with a new adaptation. And I also attended a workshop with Stage One, which is a producer's charity that is very quick, but you're suddenly thrown into the commercial world and you're hearing from commercial producers. And suddenly I went, I want to do that. You know, it seriously was a, this is my calling. And I had that ambition and excitement to try and be like them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you've got your 2018 season here at Hope Mill coming up. You've got Toy Boy Diaries, Spring Awakening, Aspects of Love. Which, which of those three is the one that made you go, yes, I've, I've been desperate to do that show? Um, well, Toy Boy Diaries is quite unique because it was something I commissioned, really. You know, I, I, I read the book, met the author, and then found a composer and a lyricist and a book writer to you know, make an adaptation. So that's the first for me, to take something literally from page to stage and put it on in a, in a full, fully, you know, a, a, a top-class production. That is the first. So that's a highlight. Um, it's difficult to put it in a sort of order, but Spring is a life-changing show on Broadway, and to be able to remount that here is incredibly exciting. Um, and aspects that's going to be a really sentimental and joyous thing to do. It's very hard. It's like asking to choose between your children. You can't really do it. <laughs> yeah. um, with, with Spring Awakening, I, I was really thrilled when, when I saw that you were doing that because in London, it, it, the first time around, it, it, you know, it didn't go so well. Um, and not, not because it's a bad show by, by any stretch, but just for some reason it didn't attract people, did it? So have you kind of seen that and thought, right, we need to work out how we can sort of market that to people to it's, give this show the life it deserves? Well, it's very different. We're trying to sell 100, 100 seats a night and they needed to sell 800 seats a night. That's a huge difference. Spring was a bit before its time in the UK. We're a very small marketplace. And although we have a tremendous amount of money and revenue and audience numbers in the West End that champion Broadway a lot, we don't have the same audience dynamic. Audiences on Broadway are hungry for new musicals. Audiences in the UK seem to be hungry for new plays. So it wasn't that Spring, Spring didn't make the impact it deserved for various reasons. Time and place, the wrong time of year, maybe the wrong pricing, I don't know. I don't think, I think 10 years later, especially in Manchester here, this is a great place to remake it and to see if we have the potential to reintroduce it to a bigger marketplace. Um, so unfortunately, quality doesn't always prevail. Spring is an extraordinary musical, life-changing in terms of the genre, ran on a long time on Broadway because those audiences, you know, were hungry for that diversity and that brave theatre. It's been revived as well already, of course. Um, yes, the Deaf West production, which I saw, which was beautiful, new interpretation of, of the show, but really powerful. But obviously England hasn't seen it really since the Lyric Hammersmith production was transferred. Um, so let's see what happens. Obviously, there's a lot of, of 
talk in the in the news at the moment about gender equality in within the entertainment industry as a whole. When you think of female producers, obviously Sonia Friedman's brings to mind, but in terms of women, that's probably the only one I could name. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's an imbalance? Do you think we need more of them? It's funny because on Broadway, there's a loads of female producers. There's definitely more there. You, are, you know, you've got Thelma Holt and Nika Burns, and there are some powerful women in London. But yes, I would say that we are underrepresented. Do I think it's a bad thing? I don't know. I've always been that sort of person that likes to be unique, and I quite like being a female. I quite like being different and a girl in a room full of men. As long as I have my voice heard and I'm not being um, treated any differently, I don't mind being different. It's the same as being relatively young. You're all, people always say, we've done a lot for your age, and you, know, you can only really have that for so long, because at some point you will be the same as everyone else. But you know, you're right. Uh, I don't know what that is. I think there are a lot of female producers in the subsidised sector, or running buildings. You know, you've got loads of women running buildings. Um, but that is very different to being an independent producer. Um, you know, the word independent, there's a, there's a difference. I need to pay my wages. I need to pay my staff's wages. I need to make every decision. If something goes wrong, it's on me. You work for a building, you've got pressure, don't get me wrong. And I want an incredible, incredible women doing what they do. But, you know, they are employees of the theatre. And fundamentally, it's, it's a bit different. You know, you're shaping your own destiny rather than shaping a building's destiny, you know. So I always wanted to be my own boss, you know, and that, that's always attracted me. Do you think that, that gender inequality we're seeing in Hollywood in the news is as prevalent in the West End, for instance? Humans are humans. You know, there's always going to be a, a crossover to behavioural patterns in both the US and here. We are a smaller market. We don't have a Hollywood of such in terms of the film industry. So we don't have the amount of actors. But, you know, I think these things do happen all the time in all shapes of life, in all decades. Um, and stories come out at certain times and people are brave and they speak out. I think it's an unfortunate thing. I think the things that are happening and the way people are speaking out and being open, and especially people in power making statements and being you know, putting protocols in place is important and it's important for people to see things are happening to tackle this. Mm, but from, and from a producer's point of view, if you're casting a show with a leading man and a, and a, and a leading lady, do you think they should be paid the same? Yes. Oh gosh, yeah, if you're talking just about equality in that sense, absolutely. Why not? I mean, gosh, you know, you, you're not judged on, you're, you shouldn't be judged on that. You know, pay is judged in terms of commercial theatre on someone's, you know, commerciability. You know, a star is often paid more because of their demand or because of what perhaps they might bring to the box office. And sometimes, unfortunately, the industry is evolved in such a way that agents demand the worth of their clients and producers don't really have a way around it. It's like that whole argument about star potential. In a way, we're all responsible for it, producers and audiences, because it just takes someone brave to say, no, I don't need a star, but, but the show might not last because the audience expect it. It's like the chicken and egg. There needs to be, it's like the same with new musicals. It needs to be a certain amount of change to really see a change, not just the odd case, you know? Absolutely. Um, we know you like a revival. If you could pick I know, three uh, shows that you could revive, that you haven't already, or that you haven't already got lined up, what would yes. it be? 
Um, so there's a show that was at the Leicester Curve that's never been to London called Light in the Piazza, which I adore. I would love to do it one day. Um, I've always won, will, will do one day Fiddler on the Roof. I have to do Fiddler on the Roof. Just have to. And also the sort of sequel to Fiddler, which is called Rags, which is by Stephen Schwartz and Charles Strauss and Joseph Stein, which is kind of the sequel to that. Um, probably one day would like to probably do rent, rent as well, you know, but a long way away and probably in a different way to how it's ever been done. Um, yeah, you asked for three less, three, and I could carry on. I think you gave me four, so <laughs> Oh great. yeah, I did, I said rags. Um, oh yeah, Adam's family, what was it like to work with Andrew Lipper? Oh, he's a, just a tour de force, he's a charming genius and he is full of charisma and full of stories, you never have a any moment of like boredom with Andrew, he's always full of, you know, a, you know, something that's uh, thrilling and funny. Um, you know, this is his, it's one of his babies. He's so passionate to recreate it in England and to give us that, um, the trust to reimagine it for a British audience was so thrilling, you know, to meet the writers in America and to talk to them about our vision to really strip it back and make it so sort of a, not poor theatre, but a sense that there was a Greek chorus of ancestors that really shaped the story, that there would be no complicated set things happening, that we strip out any of the songs that were on Broadway and make it a bit more like the American tour. Um, he was around for the rehearsal period, all the way up to Edinburgh. We spent a lot of time together um, and, you know, talking about other things together. He's he's very, very talented writer and um, feel very blessed that the man that I used to sing his songs when I was 19 and think Andrew Lipper in a, in a book is now, you know, my mate. He's so talented. I think that um, there's so much more to Andrew than is even out there. He is so gifted. And, you know, someone asked you to write Adam's Family, you're going to do it, aren't you? But I know there's lots of other projects he's written. He's written a oratorio, I Am Harvey Milk. It's absolutely extraordinary. Obviously, he's done John and Jen, A Little Princess, Wild Party, which can't be done, which is a stunning score, probably one of his most loved scores. Why by... can't it be done? I think it's something to do with the underlying property of the poem, the Wild Party poem. Michael John McCuse's production has, I think, the IP for, for, the, for the poem oh, to see. be musicalised in the UK, where he's got the rights to do it in the US. But at some point that will expire and someone I hope so. will do it. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? You can write a tune for a woman, can't he? Oh, good grief, um, yes. And, and he fills his life helping young writers develop in the US. He teaches on different conservatoires. He, he can sing, he can play. You know, he's multi-talented. So he, he's, had, he's done a few things, you know. What changes would, would you like to see in, in British theatre within the industry? What, what are the things that, that make you go, that, that annoys me, I want to do something about that? Yeah, there's a few things. But um, the biggest thing is I want, to, want producers to really group together to understand how important it is that new musicals get a chance. Um, unfortunately, that comes from audience development. Granted, you could say to me, well, Hamilton's a hit. You know, that is a rare American import that has all the hype that anything has, just like Book of Mormon did and Wicked. And these shows come over with an incredible amount of money and brand awareness. But for a new musical, and we have a couple in the West End right now which are trying really hard to stay, you know, at the forefront of people's minds, in order to do that, we need to see audience development. And to do that, we need to see more regional theatres embracing new musical theatre 
constantly, not one every three years, we're talking about one every season from some of the, you know, national portfolio theatres. And a lot of them have changed uh, artistic directors recently and unfortunately they have to inherit programming from maybe two, three years before because that's how it works in this business. So we need to see the regions seeing more of it in, around so that when audiences say, I want to go and see a show, they, they say, could it be a musical or a play, not just let's go to the Royal Court to see a play. So those theatres in London that build up an audience base, like the Royal Court and the National and the Young Vic, we need to see them getting behind new musicals much more often than they are, really. I know they develop things, and I understand it takes time, but then do more of it, do more of it, you know, because it takes a lot of money, um, and it's the gatekeepers, you know. They have to feel passionate about it as artistic directors, otherwise they're not going to put it on. That's really important to me, because, you know, soon enough, you know, Fiddle on the Roof, as I said, is an example, or Gypsy, or any of Chichester Festival's shows, they're really only going to run to six to seven months once they transfer, because they have a very definite, definitive audience, and they come, and maybe a new generation come, and then it's gone. It's only really the new things that can be like the next long hitter, the next thing. But not everything has to be that. It just needs to have a chance to build an audience and to, to run for a certain length of time. We need to create a new landscape. Like, you would look at Broadway's catalogue and you'd say, that Come From Away, Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton, Spring Awakening, Wicked, have changed the face of musical theatre in the last decade. You look at England and it's only Billy Elliot and Matilda. So I want that number to increase. Brilliant, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, it was great. You can catch Katie's production of Pippin at the Southwark Playhouse, where it transferred from the Hope Mill Theatre in Manchester. Backstage With returns with a new episode next month. In the meantime, you can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Twitter at Backstage underscore With, or there are updates online at BackstageWith.com. This episode was produced and edited by me, Mikey Worrell, with thanks to Katie Lipson, Target Live, and What Goes On Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.